In the main uh, kirtan, I always feel compelled to say that, that uh, Sri Krishna Chaitanya Mahaprabhu uh, was a great medieval saint uh, who was a uh, professor of Sanskrit, and then he got uh, the bhakti bug, and uh, he was filled with shakti, and he went around chanting Hare Krishna and Hare Bol. <clears throat> and he was the, uh, he's the, uh, what we call it, the, the eponymous hero of uh, the Hare Krishna movement. They look to him as their, as their founding deity. And so the Nityananda in that chant uh, is Nityananda Prabhu, his disciple. But since uh, we know a different Nityananda, uh, we do it. We used to chant that Hare Krishna, Hare Ram. Right, uh, Ah, they go. Uh, is that a different chant? <laughs> no, I, how does this one go? Prabhu, Sri Krishna Chaitanya, Prabhu Nityananda. Then we go, Sri Krishna Chaitanya, Prabhu Muktananda, which had no reference to the historical, but had a lot of reference to our present situation. So next time we'll do that, okay? So now we're going to, uh, we've been. Uh, doing mantras at this point in the program for quite a while since the world became critical. <laughs> when was that is the, is the right question. Uh, although more critical, it's certainly been more critical the last couple of years with uh, several of the horsemen of the apocalypse dancing around, uh, pestilence and war. What are the, the four horsemen, right? Pestilence, war, what? What? Famine? And what's the fifth? What? Plague? Well, that's plague. We've got plague. What? What is it? Death. What? Oh, I see. It's like, pla oh, plague, plague. Oh, pestilence is disease, and plague would be, yeah, like uh, lotuses, <laughs> like cockroaches, <laughs> mosquitoes. Okay. Anyway, because of that, we've been chanting, and tonight we're going to do a, a different mantra than we've been doing lately, with this is the goddess mantra. Can we put that up? <clears throat> and... Those short uh, syllables are called bija mantras, um, and they stand for different aspects of the goddess. It's very good to have the, the goddess's uh, uh, grace. As any uh, uh, husband knows, it's very good to have the grace of the goddess. And so Lord Shiva also knew that it was good to have the grace of the goddess. And so uh, we ask for the grace of the goddess, may everyone be happy, may everyone, may wars end, may pestilence end, may people be kind to each other, even though these are impossible dreams. We dream them because we know in the end, the impossible becomes possible. 
It just may not happen tomorrow. But on the other hand, it might. So we, we offer these prayers to the goddess. So we'll do 27 uh, repetitions of the mantra. Oh, I'm ready, 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 ready,
Welcome everyone. I, as most of you know, I like to begin by quoting my guru, Baba Muktananda, who began every program by saying in Hindi, With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that to welcome another person was the essence of spirituality. So in that spirit, I welcome you. And I welcome you also to our winter retreat. Um, and it's a special retreat because it culminates in Guru Purnima. Guru Purnima is the one day in the calendar year when the, the Guru is particularly honored. And so it's a very special day around for all devotees. And uh, so, uh, <clears throat> uh, Devotees think a lot about the Guru during that, that season and uh, uh, connect with the Guru and um, contemplate the Guru and study the teachings of the Guru and so on. So it's a wonderful time. I like to begin uh, the, uh, these week-long retreats always with a program from, uh, as Ronnie said, our founder. Actually, the, the, the lineage goes back to uh, time immemorial, but in modern times, since Bhagwan Nityananda uh, was reluctant to give too many personal details, uh, we don't know who his guru was or who, who the, the gurus were, but there certainly were gurus there. Uh, but he's, he's the, the first one that we know of in our lineage. And so I'm going to be looking at uh, the teachings of Bhagwan Nityananda. What do we have, Maestro? <clears throat> and uh, the first time you see Bhagwan Nityananda, it must come as a shock, as it did for me when I entered the Ganesh Prayashram. Uh, now I'm very comfortable with, uh, with him. He's quite arresting. He was uh, a mountain of Shakti extraordinary and mysterious being. Um, what else do you have? He's saying, the upstairs toilet is not working. <laughs> Either that or everything is one. <laughs> so, Bhagwan Nityananda, and what else? And here they're performing arti, a bunch of devotees performing arti. It looks like there's the marriage, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so Bhagwan Nityananda tonight, always a, a special time. Um, somebody was telling me this very week about their experience, uh, the first time they went to Bhagwan Nityananda's Samadhi Shrine. Um, and they're sitting there. This is a, 
the temple in the town of Ganeshpuri, which we travel to whenever we can, uh, about 50 miles outside of Mumbai, and it's, it's the Baba's ashram, where I spent my years in the early 70s, um, is in very close to that. The Bhagavan Samadhi Shrine is where he's buried, and it's a very powerful, um, very powerful uh, Siddhapit, a uh, place where Shakti is alive, and this person was telling me, who will remain nameless, um, that he was sitting there and uh, suddenly felt this energy surging up inside. He thought he was going to have a heart attack. So he opened his eyes and he said, oh, I'm not having a heart attack. He quieted down, closed his eyes again. Again, the energy surged up. And uh, I could relate to that. I've heard many similar stories of the, the power of the Shakti of, of Bhagwan's presence. Nobody writes about Bhagwan better than Baba. Baba was a great bhakta and devotee of Bhagwan Nityananda. He credits him with his whole attainment. And Baba had so much shakti, so much spiritual energy. And he says the reason he had it is because he was blessed by his guru, that because of the transmission that happened. And Baba wrote a wonderful book called Bhagwan Nityananda. Very fancy modern title. Um, and he writes about his uh, guru. He goes back and, and uh, he interviews his high school friends, the girl that Bhagwan took to the prom, and um, various things like that. No? Not. You can't even imagine anything like that. Bhagwan was so, such a vast, impersonal being. You can't even imagine uh, personal life. And Baba writes about him in the most exalted way. Here's a sample. Baba writes, after the awakening of Kundalini, the mind becomes completely pure and one-pointed. And see, Baba, Bhagwan Nityananda awakened Baba's Kundalini with a massive infusion of energy. Um, extraordinary. A couple of weeks we're going to be celebrating that occasion, which happened in 1947. <clears throat> Baba says, a one-pointed mind brings the experience of samadhi, of the highest state of deep meditation. The experience of samadhi brings detachment. Then very naturally, the mind is steady and free of thoughts. When this occurs, the transcendental state is attained. After that, the seeker experiences an all-pervasive state of pure bliss. He merges with this bliss and is completely fulfilled. His fulfillment is liberation. It is realization. It is enlightenment. So Baba is saying that when we overcome the tendency of the mind, we quiet the mind, when we experience this infusion of spiritual energy, a mind is uplifted and it's no longer a problem. And it, until that happens, we don't realize what an extraordinary problem our minds are. How much they cheat us, how much they lie to us, how much they take our energy, they steal our energy from us, how much they make us miserable, how much they make our lives not work, how much we, we cling to things, how much we hate things, how much we hate others, how much we, we, uh, we get caught in desire and fear and so on. We have no idea until Finally, the mind becomes free of these things. 
And this is, this is possible through the path of Shaktipat, through the path of the awakening. Baba goes on, enlightenment comes through the awakening of Kundalini. There must be awakening. There must be awakening to attain the goal, which is the great gift of the Guru's grace. Bhagavan Nityananda gave this gift generously to his devotees. You just go to that village and uh, you get Shaktipat automatically. <clears throat> the Guru's gift is immense, infinite, boundless. Only a disciple who is fully prepared, who is ripe, can understand this. With this gift from the Guru, the intellect forgets all sorrow and experiences steadfastness. One who experienced Bhagavan Nityananda's grace became full of love and experienced the nectar of bliss pervading the whole world. Not only does he feel bliss in himself, but he sees the whole world as a play of bliss. After receiving Shaktipat from the Guru, the intricacies of yoga come easy, become easy to understand. And then one can take rest in the bliss of consciousness, which is beyond the realm of space. It's beyond this world. It's the subtle realm. <clears throat> to such a compassionate guru, a disciple is forever indebted. Bhagwan Nityananda's words were like Vedic mantras. And tonight, uh, we're going to hear some of Bhagwan Nityananda's words. And I feel very fortunate, always, that there exists this collection of his sayings, which uh, we call the Chittakash Gita, the Song of Higher Consciousness that uh, a devotee, Tulsiyama, had the presence of mind to write down his utterances. Most of the other devotees were just too intoxicated being with him to remember their pencils. <laughs> They'd say, I didn't bring my pencil. What was that again? They didn't have their phone to write everything down on their phone in those days. So anyway, Tulsiyama did write it down. Because of that, we have some of these words which are like Vedic mantras. They are immortal, Baba says. For a disciple, the words that shine forth from Sri Gurudev's heart are imperishable and divine. I always thought of everything that Baba said to me as divine mantras and divine teachings and divine instructions, and that I would be very reluctant to go against anything that he said, because when you followed him, even in, into into situations that look dangerous or forbidding, uh, you would connect with the Shakti by some alchemy, some magic. The Guru's words come from the self, he says. On listening to them, this world becomes a paradise. The cycle of birth and death is destroyed, and the seeker is awakened from the nightmare of sorrow that arises from duality. It's hard to, we don't usually think that our sorrow arises from duality, but the great uh, yogic thinkers say, because we see many, you know, um, it's said in the Upanishads, as long as there are two, there's fear. As long as there's other, you know, that other one can betray you, can trap you, can kill you, can hurt you, can plot against you, can do something bad. But if you see that everything is one consciousness, there's only you here. And then, then there's nothing to be afraid of. He says, the words of such a guru are words of grace. 
Bhava is the poet of the guru and poet of the self. So here's some of um, Bhagwan Nityananda's aphorisms, aphoristic statements, which are very remarkable <clears throat> and odd also. Bhagwan says, your hunger is not satisfied by the smell of food. You must eat the food to be satisfied. Very practical and common sense too. <clears throat> What's he getting at here? <clears throat> Experience is necessary. Bhagavan Nityanar didn't have much uh, patience for big theories. Remember the famous uh, story that Baba told where he was carrying a book and Bhagavan said to him, Hey Muktananda, um, <clears throat> the book comes from the head. The head doesn't come from the book. By which he meant that it's everything's inside you. You don't have to read a book to get the knowledge. Just look inside and find the wisdom, the love that's inside you. <clears throat> Bhagavan says, when you've experienced the truth, no one can oppose you. When you, know, when you really do, when you're arguing a position, then there's going to be a lot of argument and you'll get more and more uh, head up and uh, feel bad about it. But when you know the truth, it's just the truth. You cannot experience the sweetness of sugar if you hold it in your hand. You must put it in your mouth. That's not politically correct these days, is it? What do they do for sweetness now? Ah, the dietitian, I should ask. Diet Coke. <laughs> Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> this is experience, he says. Knowledge gained from books leaves room for doubt and questioning. Experience is certain. <clears throat> we always talk about first education and second education. First education is the realm of speculation and theory, intellection, and, uh, and so on. A lot of argument is possible. Different theories come and go. But second education is the realm of experience. This is the direct experience of the self. So Bhagavan was talking about that. <clears throat> Here's another one. With faith, stabilize, stabilize the breath of life in an upward direction. Such a wonderfully mysterious remark. This is the path to liberation. Now you could take that as something about the breath, also something about living in the upward shift. Live your life in such a way that it, the movement is upward towards the divine. Keep your thoughts thinking, positive thoughts that uplift and expand and move away from thoughts that bring you down ideas that bring you down, and speculations that bring you down, emotions that bring you down. He says, the eternal spirit dwells in the cave of the body. Yoga is union. That's one of the classic definitions. Yoga means union. Where the two merge into one, this is yoga. So what, what two things merge, and this becomes one. What's he talking about? When the mind and the intellect become one, that is yoga. <clears throat> when the jiva, the individual, follows the path of buddhi, of the intellect, and enters the brahmarandra, that is yoga. When we 
enter the topmost center. Devotion, reflection, power, all three merge and become Om. Devotion, reflection, power is Itcha Yana Kriya, the, the faculty of, uh, of uh, emotion, thought, and action all merge and become one. The ego melts into the Om sound like camphor melts in fire. The mental processes emerge in the self, merge in the self. Place the mind in the booty. Place your mind in the intellect. Place it in higher wisdom. Place it in I am that, I am the self. Place it in that. <clears throat> like a child placed in the cradle and rocked, know who you are. What a marvelously wonderful and strange statement. Place the mind in the booty. So think noble thoughts. Don't just think dumb, boring, mundane, paranoid thoughts. Don't waste your time on that. Think, I am the self. I am Shiva. I am consciousness. And place it there like a, a child placed in the, in the cradle and rocked. Meditate on it. Think about it. Contemplate it. Run, it. run it through your mind. Wash your whole life in that, in these noble thoughts. And then finally know who you are. Great one. <clears throat> okay. I've got a lot of them here, so we'll have to stop at some point when Davy Mott tells me, right? <clears throat> Here's another. It is rare to be a millionaire. All cannot be millionaires at the same time. You can't have a world full of millionaires, even though Marx wanted that. But uh, can't there have to be some some people. Everyone is rewarded according to his due, according to karma. <clears throat> it's an interesting thought, you know, because if you really place your mind in your booty, then you understand the highest truth that this world is just. This is the radical position of the great sages, of Kashmir Shaivism, of Vedanta, of Yoga, of Abhinava Gupta, of Sankaracharya, that the world is just. And yet we look and we see injustice everywhere. We're uh, obsessed by inequality and by injustice everywhere. But if you understand from the highest perspective, from the divine perspective, everything is just, then you start looking at the world in a different way. Our culture doesn't accept this. So you have to go against culture and see something higher than culture. Culture is just the prejudices of the time and they always shift. You look back a couple hundred years, you think people were incredibly benighted. But 500 years from now, they're gonna look back at our culture and say, God, are they idiots. Ridiculous. So there's justice. Everyone is recorded according to his due. But it's benevolent because even though karma unfolds, the goal is always towards the highest. And everyone achieves that in the end. We just have to go through various kinds of experiences. He says, there's plenty of water in the sea. How much water you get depends on the size of the container you bring. They say also, you know, is your cup 
you have a large enough vessel to contain the guru's grace, you know, just a tiny thimble. <clears throat> uh, the residue of past actions determines the fruit, what we call karma. It is because of these past actions that you're interested in the teachings of holy men. It's because of mysterious things from our past that makes us want to come to satsang. You get a passion for it. I became mad for it. So nothing else filled the bill to hear these noble truths and to meet great beings. This was, uh, became, a, and it was so unexpected. I don't know how that happened to me. But when it happens, it's, it's like eating something so nutritious, so rich. It's because of these past actions that you find less satisfaction in the world. So all the th things that delighted you aren't quite as glittering because you realize there's something deeper. For those who are so guided, there is no need for special renunciations. <clears throat> Vairagi itself is the result of past actions. For such people, now is the time to pursue liberation. Now is the time. <clears throat> you know, in India, they think of, uh, they talk about the four ashramas of life, four stages of life. There's the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, youth, you could say youth. Student. Yeah, student phase, that's it. Uh, and then there's the householder phase, that's main life, that's from like 20 to 60, 70. And, um, and then in retirement, the tradition is that you seek God. You seek God in retirement. This is the Indian, the Hindu uh, perspective. Um, and then finally you wander by yourself, you know, God-realized state in the end of life. So these are the states of, uh, and they used to ask us all the time, because. A lot of us from the West were very young when we got to Baba, and they said, how come you're here so young? Why don't you, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you uh, living your life? And then at the end of life, you could, time for all this ashram nonsense. And we look at them and think, God, because all of us were jet propelled, something had happened. There was an explosion and we were just mad to do it. We felt so lucky to have found Baba and be there in that environment. So uh, now is the time, now is the time to pursue liberation. Another one. Japa is not performed by the hands nor by the mouth. Japa is repetition of mantra. And you can uh, repeat the mantra with your fingers, you know. Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. Or you can um, gurgle it, what do you call it? Mumble it. He says, the self is not realized by the mind. Action, work, is not performed by the hands or by the legs. So what is it all done? He's saying something more subtle than that, more subtle than mind, more subtle than the body. There's something more subtle, that's how you attain. He says, oh mind, act with no desire for results. Do work without attachment. Attain desirelessness and see all equally. Bhagavan Nityananda 
uh, emphasize desirelessness. That's, that's a, a hard concept for us in the West also, desirelessness. Desire makes the world go around. It's all, uh, you know, uh, advertising, everything's all based on desire, and our lives based on desire. <clears throat> First of all, he's talking about the, the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, which says you should do your, your work without attachment to the fruits. You do your duty, but you don't worry about outcomes. And now I see, uh, I, I notice in the sports psychologists have picked this up. I wonder if they're reading the Gita. But they say, well, you just play the game. You don't worry about winning and losing. You just play the game. That's the best way. If you're too caught up in winning and losing, you get uptight and then you lose. So just play the game. <clears throat> so, but Bhagwan always emphasizes desirelessness. And for me, he's the symbol of desirelessness. That's what desirelessness looks like. Man in a loincloth. <clears throat> but what would it be like if you were desireless and also fearless? So in other words, your present situation was just what it was, perfect. You weren't always thinking, I want this, I want that, I want less of this or more of this. <clears throat> You're just content. So Bhagavan Nityananda showed up every day contentedly, completely contented. It was okay, it was perfect for him every day. Imagine yourself like that. Is that a leap? Different from the present situation, isn't it? But it's a, good, it's a good contemplation. Become Bhagavan Nityananda. You're just sitting there. He wasn't sitting there thinking, Jesus, I have to get more money. I have to, um, you know, people liking me enough. I saw somebody look cross-eyed in satsang at me, you know? And uh, uh, what else? How many followers do I have? I don't know how many followers I have. And uh, my wardrobe could probably use some work. <laughs> I want a Dior loincloth. <clears throat> but no, he just sat there like that. And he was terrifying. Somebody was saying how terrifying it, must, it would have been to meet him, because there he was, he just was there. So imagine yourself like that. Let's do that for a second. You're Bhagwan Nityananda. You're just there. Nothing to do, nothing to get, nothing to avoid. You're just there. Bring your full essence, your full beingness present. And there you are. It's wrong to think that he had all this uh, occult stuff going on. It's right to think he just brought his beingness present. And it was effortless. He didn't have to, to fight to make it happen. Because he'd overcome the movement of those samskaras. He was just present. Simple and present. Kind of childlike. So let me ask you a question. Is there shakti in this contemplation? 
You find that? Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I think that's that's enough. We'll do one just the the one on meditation, I think. And then we'll meditate a bit. <clears throat> Bhagavan says, the Om sound should be drawn inside with the breath, like water is drawn up from a well. Whenever he talked about meditation, this was the metaphor he used. Water being drawn from a well. We don't even know what wells are, do we? <laughs> water is drawn from a tap. Water gotten from a bottle in the supermarket. No, but Water drawn up from a well, bucket, water comes up. So you draw up the om sound with the in-breath. Om. And like the pot is let down to the well for a fresh fill, the exhalation should be released with om. Om in, om out. Hum in, saw out. Breath comes in. Breath goes out. Just watch the breath, connect with the breath. Bring the mind to the breath. And then the Shakti will be present and just be there. So let's meditate. This is Bhagwan Nityananda's meditation. We'll meditate for 10 minutes. So what we'll do is we're going to use the breath as the hook, as the theme, as the object of our meditation. <clears throat> so just sit calmly and watch the breath. The breath comes in. And when you breathe in, you're lifting the the, the uh, what is it? The pail. What do you call it? The bucket. The bucket. A good thing of that word. Lifting the bucket from the well with Om, bringing it to your Sahasrara. When you breathe out, you're dipping the bucket back in the well. And you can say Om or Hum Sa if you like. Hum on the in breath, Sa on the out breath. In Om, out Om. And do that, and then meditate as you like. So we'll meditate now for 10 minutes. Once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart, and I welcome you all to the retreat, which will be wonderful. So let's meditate now. <clears throat> 